Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me, Bill Arnold. I'm excited about this hour because Dr. Ann Bradley is going to be joining me in just a minute. And we are always interested in money. It seems that the Bible says quite a bit about it. Ecclesiastes in chapter 5, verse 10 says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Even though you may love money, like Ecclesiastes says, you may not understand economics well. And what Anna's is going to help us do is understand economics better. And I love this verse, too, out of Hebrews that says in chapter 13, verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said. You just fill in the blank because right now that verse, the rest of that verse is in your head right now, isn't it? Never will I... You got it. Perfect. Everyone got it. Perfect. All right. Let me take a little break and then I'll bring on Dr. Ann Bradley. Faith Radio is so much more than just radio. We are a multimedia ministry encouraging people to connect faith to life every day through a variety of platforms. Now, you may have been driving, captivated by a Faith Radio interview, but not able to listen to it all because you had an appointment. Or maybe you had an extra busy day and you missed your favorite show. Well, thankfully, you can go back and listen to any of our programs in their entirety at MyFaithRadio.com by clicking on Podcasts. You can also download the free Faith Radio app to listen to any past programs or check out the live stream. Just search for Faith Radio in iTunes or Google Play. And for Alexa and Amazon Echo devices, just say Enable Faith Radio. Then say Play Faith Radio to listen to the live stream. Use your connected device to stay encouraged and equipped every day through Faith Radio. show. My guest is Dr. Ann Bradley. She's the Vice President of Economic Initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. She is a professor. She got her PhD in economics from George Mason University. She's a visiting professor at Georgetown and has previously also taught at George Mason and at Charles University in Prague. Ann, nice to have you back on the show. Hey, Bill. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Now, uh, just remind me of your books as Be Fruitful and Multiply. That's a book? Yeah, it's kind of a booklet, so booklet, it's easy yeah. to digest. Yeah, shorter book. It's about kind of bringing economic principles into our daily lives. Uh, we also came out with a book last year called Counting the Cost, Christian Perspectives on Capitalism. Yes, that book is awesome, yeah. by the way. Thank you. Yeah. And for the least of these? 
Yes, A Biblical Answer to Poverty. So that was our first kind of collaborative edited volume on really what does Scripture have to say about how we care for the poor and then what kind of social and economic arrangements are are most productive for Mm -hmm. the poor. So, Anne, you're an economist, and so you'll be able to answer this question easily. Do Christians disregard economics when it comes to making decisions um, about their money? Not more than other people do, okay. but I think the answer is is yes. Why I think it's a problem is because economics is about good stewardship. And so as Christians, we have a unique call to be good stewards. And that, that's why the little booklet is titled Be Fruitful and Multiply. I mean, mm-hmm. we, of course, know that's the mandate given to us in Genesis. Um, and we know the multiply part, have families, care for our families in our communities and through our churches and things like this. But uh, being fruitful is, is about our work. And so we need a certain type of society that allows us to use our unique skills, but to do that in a way that allows us to create more wealth, more prosperity, longer lives, better lives for our children and future generations uh, requires that we embrace certain economic principles. Okay. Maybe you would uh, tell us about the economic realities that we're facing? Yeah, uh, I always say this when I'm um, on, you know, my first day of classes with my students, uh, and and this is kind of the line, which is that um, economic realities are very much like the realities of physics. Uh, You don't deny gravity, you know, you don't say, well, that's fake news, (laughs) or something like that, because, you know, you don't like the constraint it imposes on you. you. You don't have to know that much about gravity, but you do have to know that it constrains you. And if you ignore it, you will do so at your peril. This is the same with economic realities. And some of those things are, for example, we live in a world of scarcity. I think everybody knows that. But I think, and I think we're actually pretty good about embracing that in our daily lives, for the most part. Mm -hmm. In the policy space, it becomes easier to ignore it or kind of pretend like we'll accumulate a lot of debt and maybe just worry about it in the future. Um, So in the policy space, I think Christians, like you know, other people of other faiths sometimes disregard these economic realities. When we do, we create policies that can wreak a lot of havoc on the economy and actually harm the very people the policies are intending to help. And so we can't do that. That's not okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So then how do we, uh, in a world of scarcity, how do we start to assign, you know, value? Because don't we all sort of want the same things at the end of the day? Yeah. I mean, we, we all want, we all want to have a lot of things. We all, you know, that kind of, we talk about in economics, these unlimited desires that people have, uh, and we all are, are operating on the principle of self-interest. And so self-interest is what makes you do things like eat breakfast when you're hungry in the morning. And it, you know, um, it makes you go to work in the morning because you're going to get a paycheck. So self-interest isn't bad. Greed is bad. Um, and, and, you know, we just have to know that all of us are motivated in that way, um, but we all want different things. So, you know, we all want shelter, but we all want that shelter to take different forms. So I do I do think you're right that we all want the same things in general, but in, in reality, those things take on varied forms. And so your kind of question is, how do we solve these problems? We all want a lot of things. We're all self-interested, but we're all sinners. So sometimes we're greedy. Sometimes we do the wrong things by choice. So how do you, the big question of human history is how do you construct a society that takes the people in that way, that they are sinners, broken, fallen, and 
provides incentives for those people to be productive and not just productive for themselves, but productive for society. And what we know is that property rights, prices that kind of um, evolve through market economies are the best way we've really ever seen to do that. Mm -hmm. Is greed one of those sins that's in everyone's blind spot? Because have you ever heard someone say, boy, I really struggle with the sin of greed? Yeah. Yeah, I do think that's an interesting point. Um, When you... People always worry about other people being greedy. <laughs> All but, the time. Right? Yeah. But, but we're not so worried, even in the political rhetoric, that's what you hear, right? It's, it's like, well, rich people are greedy in some unique way that poor people or middle class people aren't greedy. And I, I think that's a mistake. I think we're all greedy. It's, and we all have this compulsion to, to take care of ourselves first at the expense of other people, which is the unique definition of greed. So I do think we have a blind spot because we just kind of say, well, that's not really my problem. I might have other sins. I might have other problems, but I'm not really greedy. I care about other people. And it is a blind spot. Um, And the question, again, is how do you construct social norms, economic norms, economic institutions that really take people as they are? kind of rather than as we want them to be. And so if we just pretend greed isn't on the table, again, when we construct policies, we're going to miss the mark because everybody has the propensity towards greed. Mm -hmm. I think we can easily pick it out in other people, but maybe not see it so much in ourselves. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have tons of money and you can still be greedy. Right. Exactly. Uh, And scripture is very clear about this, right? It's having a heart of obedience to God and love for Jesus uh, that's the most important thing. And so being greedy or coveting the wrong things uh, happens regardless of your income status. You can be greedy when, when you're poor. You can be greedy when you're rich. You can covet money when you're poor. You can covet money when you're rich. So I don't think these things are unique to certain income classes. I will say that in the world we live in today where you can seemingly get everything at your fingertips. You know, we live in the digital age. So you, you have a question about something. You search Google. And you at least can kind of pave a way towards the answer. You still have to search, you know, and read. But it just, everything is instant. And I think in that environment, again, whether you're rich or poor, we demand instant perfection, instant solutions to our problems. Um, And I think that creates in us an impatience uh, that is is frightening because I think, again, uh, we think we can have instant solutions to our problems. and, And God tells us through scripture that we're going to struggle, that we're going to face trials, and that the answers aren't always instant. So we have to have perseverance. And again, I think in the modern age, that might be a harder trait Mm -hmm. than it was before. Do you think uh, when we go to make stewardship decisions, I mean, we also have to factor in our, our, the talents and gifts God has given us, right? Right. Yeah. Um, the kind of the thing that I'm trying to have young children and and one of the things that I'm trying to, and my husband, we're trying to teach them is that you don't just get to choose to be anything you want to be. And that's very much counter to the cultural narrative. The cultural narrative today is you can be anything you want to be. This is not true. You can be anything that God created you to be, which Mm -hmm. is probably a variety of things, but it's not like going to a restaurant and picking off a menu. I'm going to be a professional baseball player, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you can't be a professional baseball player if you aren't, if you don't have the skills and the talent to do that. And so I think coming to terms with who God made us to be 
is going to be the source of not only our fulfillment and joy in work, but it's what's going to allow us to be the most productive, both, again, for our families, but also in providing goods and services to other people. And so, you know, it's a very hard lesson, especially in the kind of modern age in the in the 21st century to teach um, young children or the college students I see in my classroom who are very disillusioned at the age of 20 when they don't think they know what they want to do. And so kind of the counsel I give them is, I don't know, any 20-year-old who, who successfully knew the whole path of their future life mm-hmm. can't possibly know that. But when we kind of put these expectations on young people, I think they get very disillusioned with why don't I have this figured out and why am I not the best in the world? And, hey, I chose to be a chemist, but really I should be you know, a teacher mm-hmm. of English. You know, I think we just can't invent it. We have to really look deep into ourselves and say, who did God create me to be? And start there. Yeah. If you can be anything you want to be, that's kind of a romantic thought, and you can end up feeling um, like you have no idea what, what you want to do when you think you can do whatever you want to do, which I don't think is true, like you just said. Yeah. All right. And uh, I think it creates disillusionment. I, I agree. I agree. Because you, you either have the gifts and talents that God has given you, or you don't, so you can't manufacture something that doesn't exist, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now we're talking common sense, Ann. That's right, <laughs> which is what econ should be. Exactly, exactly. Let me take a little break. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest from the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics, org is the website. We'll be right back. common sense economist you do now dr ann bradley's on the on the studio line and she's from the institute of faith work and economics and and let's just talk common sense you know with this the minimum wage let's let's everyone wants to see it go up but doesn't that just mean related payroll costs are going up and it puts employers in a squeeze and they can't pay more no no matter what the minimum rate is don't they just end up cutting hours or cutting jobs well, that's those are possibilities. Those are, those are certainly. And your first point is that this is raises labor costs. So this goes back to our uh, conversation a few moments ago, where we talked about living in a world of scarcity and recognizing that, which is that money just doesn't appear. And just because the United States federal government and state governments have very large budgets compared to, for, say, a household, that doesn't mean that there's kind of an endless bucket of money from which we can pull and solve all of our problems. And and so I think you have to look at the problem in a couple of ways. One is, you know, if the market was persistently underpaying uh, workers, especially in this, this kind of working group tends to hit restaurants and service industry providers like that the, the fastest or, or immediately. Um, so, you know, if think about living in a rural town somewhere and you run a Dollar General store, and you have somebody who works for you, you know, 30 hours a week or 40 hours a week, and it's a family business or it's a family-owned franchise, you know, that that 30-hour-a-week person now, if their wage went from $10 to $15 an hour, you've just increased their labor costs significantly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what we, what we on the other side of this, what we look at is to say, are employers kind of exploiting 
low skilled workers by, you know, paying them under what some magical wage should be. And what the numbers show us is no, wages tend to grow as productivity grows. And usually, by the way, when we do this, the people that get hurt the most are teens. So, you know, people from the ages of 15, maybe to 24. And those, and you might ask, well, why is that? It's because, you know, when I was 15 years old, I worked at Baskin Robbins. It was my first job ever. And I'm certain I got paid the minimum wage. I couldn't tell you what it is, what it was. And I think back on that time, and I think this guy had this franchise, and he hired a 15-year-old who didn't know anything about anything to run his cash register and scoop his inventory and give it to customers. And he wasn't even there all the time, you know? Yeah. And I think, okay, well, why am I not doing that today? I'm not doing that today because that was that was a step on the economic ladder. And I needed that step on the economic ladder. And then I was able to take other steps by increasing my training on the job and getting more education and all these things. And so we don't want to cut off the bottom of the economic ladder for people who need it the most. Because, you know, I was when I was 15, I was buying clothes that my parents wouldn't buy for me. But what if I was helping contribute to the family's grocery bill or the rent? You know, you're really harming families and you're harming the future workforce by doing this. So, again, it, it's not that it's bad to desire that lower skilled workers make more money. We all want that. But the question is, how do you make it happen? And I think a mandated minimum wage that's not based in kind of supply and demand thinking is is, is not going to work. And so what we saw happen in Seattle when they engaged in a $15 minimum wage is restaurants were closing before the minimum wage even fully went into effect because restaurateurs cannot afford this. You know, you're running the dollar general. What are you going to do? You're going to cut that person's hours and do more of it yourself. Mm-hmm. And so you're actually hurting the people you're trying to help. And that's an unintended consequence that we must consider before kind of just running around making policies that sound good. So I kind of say this falls under one of the policies that might sound good on paper. But again, ultimately, somebody has to pay for that. Who pays for it? Well, the workers themselves who get their hours cut or lose their jobs and the restaurants or other service providers, you know, if they have to raise the price of their products then consumers pay for that or Mm -hmm. if they go out of business altogether. So it's a pretty, you know, dire set of circumstances that follow the minimum wage. Yeah. I'm still a little stuck at you working at Baskin Robbins, and I'm curious as to what your favorite flavor was, because that's all I'm thinking about right now is my favorite flavor. Oh, so I don't know if it's, I I haven't been in a Baskin Robbins in years, but it was like a raspberry with chocolate chunks, and it was so good. Yeah. But, you know, there was no time for eating ice cream. We had those long (laughs) Friday night lines, so we thought it was going to be more fun than it was. Yeah. But it was great. It was a great opportunity. Yeah, fun fun little phase of your life, isn't it? You're 15 and it's a, it's a hot summer night and, and those people come into that air-conditioned ice cream store and get an ice cream. That's a, that's a great time, wasn't it? Well, and yeah, and they were relentless in their demands for ice cream. So <laughs> I had to work for my $5 an hour I'm, or whatever it was. I'm sure. So when, when I hear some of the proposals being made uh, by politicians today with extravagantly expensive programs, does that make mm-hmm. any economic sense to a common sense uh, economists such as yourself? I think it depends on what it is, of course. You know, the way economists approach these issues is not to just rule everything off the table out of hand, but to say, what is the problem we're trying to address? And what is the best institution to address the problem? So we really have kind of three primary institutions in society. We have the market, 
where we buy and sell things. We have the government, which has the power of force and coercion, so they can make us do things through taxation. And then we have civil society, right? We have nonprofit organizations and churches. So there's three different very robust sectors which can deal with the problems that we face. Uh, and, and so the, the first thing an economist does is say, okay, what's the problem? Is, is the problem low wages? Is the problem – and I can think of one based on your question that's kind of hot in the news right now, which is student debt forgiveness. Mm-hmm. You know, again, that sounds like a good idea too because we have people who are 22 years old graduating. I, I just looked up the numbers. I think the average debt load is about $30,000. That's a lot to start mm-hmm. life with. So, you know, it's it's we want to give an advantage to our children. We want them to be able to go through college and afford to get that degree. But canceling debt, you know, again, is that's using the government institution to solve the problem. I'm not sure that's the right solution. And here's why. I think it's going to encourage more people to pay to to make, you know, get into debt, assuming that it will be forgiven. And I think that it doesn't deal with the real source of the problem. And the real source of the problem is that colleges have gotten exorbitantly expensive over the last 25 years. And what they're doing is not hiring more professors in the classroom so that the degree is actually better, but they're building water parks and they're building fancy gyms and they're creating dorms that look like middle-class renovated kitchens. Mm So, you know, all these kind of bells and whistles, which are trying to get the students there, I think the colleges are doing a disservice to their own population. And what we need is more competition. We need less government regulation and less government subsidization of higher ed. And I think that's going to make higher ed better and cheaper and more differentiated. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, I, I think this falls into an example of ignoring scarcity and using the wrong set of institutions to solve the problem. But as an economist, what I would say is we have to take each policy on a case-by-case basis and, and ask those kind of questions. Yeah. Um, when I think of the, the percentage of Americans that attended college, I know the numbers are not huge, uh, and I'm wondering if you know some of the debt that you would, that you would accumulate in trade school, were they planning to make that go away too? Um, in terms of the current proposals that are on the table, yeah. yeah, I don't think so. I think it's more targeted towards traditional college, which actually now, by the way, we measure in six-year degrees uh, rather than four years. So it's it's also taking students a lot more time to get through. But the data on trade schools, technical schools, vocational, you know, apprenticeships is is really promising. Uh, it takes a lot less money. It takes a lot less time. And it's kind of if you're an an apprentice, you're getting on-the-job training. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just looked up some of the numbers um, recently. I think the median income for um, an elevator installer and person who repairs elevators is like $78,000, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Yes, with 9% growth in jobs this year. For electricians, I think it's like $56,000, 12% job growth expected this year. So there's real value, there's real money to be made by pursuing these types of careers. And I think the world needs good electricians and good plumbers. Yeah. But we have to shift our values. You know, we, we think, well, my child isn't a success unless they've gone to Harvard and they're an accountant or something. Yeah. And thank you so much for doing the show. You always make a lot of sense, and then you've also inspired us to go eat ice cream tonight. So thank you. Yes, excellent. Thanks so much. We'll take a short break and be back with lots more in just a minute.
I am so glad to be welcoming back to the show uh, A.J. Swoboda. I loved his name when I first heard it, and I thought he's either a relief pitcher for the Mets or he's a really smart theologian. And it turns out that the second was correct. And he's written a book called The Surprising Power of Rest in a Nonstop World, Subversive Sabbath is what he calls it. And uh, he's also written another uh, book, too, that I'm going to try to get to in this uh, conversation I'm having with him today. Uh, it's called Redeeming How We Talk. But let's do one at a time. Let's start by welcoming A.J. back to the show. Hi, A.J. Oh, Bill, it's great to be with you. And I should clarify, a rumor on the street is I'm actually related to Ron Swoboda of the Mets. That's so, so cool. Oh, might be true. Oh, let's stop this interview right now. <laughs> <laughs> I have all the information I need. <laughs> yes, there you go. So as we live in a endless cycle of work, distraction, burnout, anxiety, pressure, all of this, has there ever been a more important time to be understanding what God is trying to teach us about the Sabbath rest? Mm. Well, I yeah, I've kind of been on a bit of a crusade recently to argue that, no, there's there's no more important time. In fact, uh, you know, as we increasingly see um, burnout rates among pastors, even suicide rates among teenagers and whatnot, I think it's all connected to the same issue, and that is that we have uh, forgotten uh, the one command in the Bible that God actually asked us to remember, which was the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath, and to do it in the way Jesus did it, in a very graceful, loving way. Um, but in a world of burnout, I don't, I don't know if there is a more important topic uh, for the church to really be capturing today. Mm-hmm. Mark 2.27, of course, you know this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So God obviously has mm-hmm. something very specifically designed for its purpose, and we need to be reminded of what it is and then live it out. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a gift. In fact, for the uh, for, for those of us who have been practicing the Sabbath for some time, or even in the Jewish tradition, the, the Sabbath was understood primarily as a gift from God. It was given to us, not us to the Sabbath, of course. Um, we're doing the Sabbath inappropriately when we become enslaved to it. We're not, uh, it's, not an, it's not a new form of slavery uh, that we legalistically seek to do perfectly. Rather, it's um, a gift, a, a very gift from God. And <clears throat> gifts are very hard to receive, particularly for work-oriented people. Um, but it is a gift, and when we begin to do it, it is profoundly life-changing. AJ, you suggest in your book that God may actually do more when we do less. A little counterintuitive, but I love it. Please say <laughs> yeah. more. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the entire uh, the, the irony of the, the Bible is that, you know, God created Adam and Eve on day six, and then day seven uh, told them to rest. And when you look at the context uh, for rest for Adam and Eve. You know, we generally, as Americans, think uh, we get to rest after we've gotten all of our work done. Uh, the biblical story actually gives us a completely opposite story, that Adam and Eve's very first day of existence, day seven after their creation, was a day of rest, and that they had done absolutely nothing to earn it. It was, in my opinion, the first image of the gospel, uh, which was God's, God's nature is to give us rest, give us love, give us peace before we've ever earned it. Um, yeah, we need to get to work afterwards, but we begin uh, we begin with rest and then get to work uh, later on. So the whole narrative of rest is that it is, it is primarily a gift given um, uh, uh, for people who have gotten nothing done. <laughs> mm-hmm. AJ, is this about a, a certain day of the week or is it a position of the heart? 
What does uh, observing the Sabbath look like for believers today? Yeah, well, there you know there are some really important New Testament texts that clarify that question, particularly the what day does it need to be? Paul, for example, um, writes, you know, some people think one day is sacred and other people think another day is sacred, but whatever you do, you do it unto the Lord. Uh, and then in 2 Corinthians, he says, you know, don't let anybody judge you because of what day uh, the Sabbath is. And what I, what I read when I read that is that Paul is freeing us from any kind of legalistic command that says it needs to be a certain day and is actually inviting us uh, to have a, a grace-filled Sabbath. And so, you know, I'll tell you this. If it has to be Sunday, I'm a pastor. If it has to be Sunday, I'm toast. Uh, because there <laughs> yeah. has never been a day in human history where a pastor has walked away from church on Sunday and said, that was a refreshing experience. It's hard work. Right. And there needs to be a grace. There needs to be a Sabbath for me, and it can't be Sunday. So I don't believe the day matters. What I believe matters is one and seven, that one day in seven is the day, is, is the invitation. Yeah. Well, work and lack of rest and health and uh, exercise and everything else leads us to a, an early death. Talk about Sabbath and health. Mm-hmm. Just to be well, super even, practical. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even um, there's some really fascinating research around this because uh, our friend, Seventh-day Adventist friends, who I, many Seventh-day Adventist friends who I'm grateful for, but I have long believed that their position on the Sabbath has been um, unnecessarily burdensome, uh, arguing that it has to be on Saturday. Um, even Seventh-day Adventists who do the Sabbath, in my opinion, a bit legalistically, even though they do it legalistically, the implications and the ramifications of their practice of the Sabbath are incredible. The average Seventh-day Adventist lives 10 years longer than the average American. Wow. So even when, even when we do the Sabbath legalistically, it blesses, blesses us. <laughs> um, even when it's done improperly, it, it blesses us. And so I, I, would, I would say if you don't want to follow the Sabbath because God told you to do it, well, then just do it because you want an extra 10 years of life. Um, and you'll have it. I mean, it, it literally will make you a healthier human being. Wow. Now, the danger is we don't obey God for just for the byproducts. We obey God because God said to do it, and we obey God. Uh, but it turns out when you obey God, there, there usually are pretty awesome ramifications. AJ, we live obviously in a world where being productive is an idol. We always have to be productive. Are we going to be productive today? You hear that all the time. So the idea of resting, does that mean we're going to be not productive? Because that's really going to be hard for a lot of people. Um, well, actually, you, actually you... the opposite. Uh, yes. So studies are revealing uh, that our productivity has a threshold. Okay. So if we work seven days a week, our productivity actually goes down. Studies have been done have shown that if you work five to six days a week, your productivity goes up. So the idea, I, I actually go back to Second Thessalonians chapter uh, three, I believe it is, where Paul talks about this concept of idleness. And idleness is being a busybody. It's doing too much. And, and he invites the church to settle down and earn, earn the work, that, earn, earn the food that they, they eat. Um, we, I think that we are, uh, we, we overproduce and our productivity actually in the end goes down. Incidentally, when I preached on the Sabbath in our church uh, for three weeks, um, I've preached on all sorts of things that have made people mad. I've preached on sexuality, which I'm very conservative on sexuality. I've preached on marijuana. I've preached on open marriages. I've preached on a lot of things that have made people mad in our church. And I preached on the Sabbath for three weeks, and I, have, I don't think we've ever had more people leave our church. And, and incidentally, 
when the elders wanted to sit down and talk about this concept of the Sabbath, I had an epiphany that really has kind of haunted me, that as a pastor, if I broke nine of the commandments, uh, if I stole money from the church, I'd lose my job. If I started preaching another name of God, I'd lose my job. If I murdered somebody, I'd definitely lose my job. And it dawned on me for the first time that if I don't keep the Sabbath as a pastor, uh, I'll probably get a raise. It has literally become the one commandment that we incentivize people breaking. I, I'm I'm a little stunned right now. I'm trying to figure out why people were leaving in your church when you're teaching about Sabbath. I would think that would be the most welcome <clears throat> message out there because you'd be the, giving per, permission to people to rest. Yeah, yeah well, uh, it, it turns out that the Sabbath completely steps on and offends all of our modern idols, our sensibilities around productivity, affluence, work, uh, wealth. It, uh, it disrespects all of those idols and actually calls us to turn from the gods of wealth, the gods of productivity, the gods of Egypt, and says, turn to the Lord your God, Yahweh, and worship him and him alone, because we are not the culmination of our productivity. We are uh, made in the image of God and made for him and him alone. So, AJ, am I thinking this clearly, that if we are taking a Sabbath rest, is there a chance that this rest we're taking is going to be pleasing to God? Um, yes, we got to be careful with this, because at no point can we say that in keeping the law, God is more pleased with us. We are God is pleased with us because of Christ, Okay, is the fulfillment of the law. And the danger is for a lot of Christians is they think if I start keeping a Sabbath, God likes me more. Oh, no, um, I wasn't thinking or, that. I was yep. not. I wasn't thinking that. I was wondering, is it pleasing to God to have 100%. see His? Okay. He made He made us for this. It is displeasing to God when I kill or murder a human being. Yes. It is displeasing to God when I choose to worship money over God, and it is displeasing to God when I do not honor. Um, the, my body and time the way that God asked me to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, 100%, God is pleased when any of us seek um, to live according to the way God asked us to live. Mm-hmm. Part one of but your... we are not saved by keeping a Sabbath in no. the same way that we're not saved by being baptized. We are saved by Jesus and Jesus alone. Of course. Amen to all that. I was just really wondering that if God is pleased with our purposeful work that we do, if he would also yes. be pleased with the fact that we are taking a Sabbath rest. Yes, and incidentally, I should say, uh, in, Genesis, in, in Exodus 20, uh, the fourth commandment, uh, the invitation to rest is simultaneously an invitation to work. Um, rest one day a week and work six days a week. So this is actually an invitation also to work really well. Uh, it is both. It is not just an invitation to rest. It is simultaneously an, uh, an invitation to work really hard. Okay, AJ, I got a whole bunch of questions still coming your way. I'm going to take a break in a couple of minutes, but uh, I want you to tackle this question before the break. If we need to start creating what you, you know, this Sabbath rest in our lives, and right now let's say it doesn't exist, where do we start? Hmm. You start right where you are, and you, you begin with what God has given to you. And I, I know people, for example, when I preached for three weeks on this, there were moms in the room who took it really hard. It was very hard for moms. Um, I would say uh, if you have a half a day and you can start with that, I say give God that half a day and he will meet you. My gut tells me that if you do half a day, 
you're going to love it so much you'll start fighting for a whole day. <laughs> uh-huh. I think you're absolutely right. Um, you start, start with what you've got and, and move from there. Okay. Uh, let me take a, a little break. Uh, my guest is uh, A.J. Swoboda. He's written a book called Subversive Sabbath, The Surprising Power of Rest in a Nonstop World. Be back in 90 seconds. the show i have on my guest line aj swoboda he's written a book called subversive sabbath and we're talking about the sabbath rest a very important subject i know a lot of us feel completely burned out um maybe you've become irritable maybe you don't sleep that good at night and then you're irritable that you don't sleep and then you're not productive during the day and you think you got to do more and maybe you have to do less and maybe god will recalibrate once you start taking this sabbath rest um I'm very fascinated, uh, AJ, because we all live in these these times of there's so much on the calendar. Every time you get a break, you think, if I had an afternoon off, I really should call up that neighbor friend of mine that I've been saying for six months I'll take him out for coffee and I haven't done it yet. How do you shut that voice off in your head? Well, I would never invite anybody to shut down the voice that says be a good neighbor and love the people around you. But I would say um, hear that voice and then do the hard work of scheduling it in a way that honors your rest. Um, Eugene Peterson wrote once in a book, uh, the late Eugene Peterson, who who has had a huge impact on my life. uh, He made a comment years ago that the root sin of, uh, of burnout the root sin of burnout is actually laziness. And his point was that when you, when you burn out, it's largely because you were so lazy that you couldn't have the fortitude and strength to say no to people. Mm. So at the end of the day, it's a laziness of spirit that leads to burnout. Uh, at the end of the day, God wants us to be strong in our spirit, to be able to hear his voice and honor what he's invited us to do. So I would say listen to that voice and then schedule it for one of the days that you're not resting. Mm-hmm. In uh, part two of your book, you talk about Sabbath for others, and you talk about Sabbath economy and technology. That mm. is very interesting. Explain more about that. Well, this is one of those parts of the Bible that actually affects, I mean, the Bible affects everything, but this is one of those commandments in the Bible that at the end of the day is so uh, practical in its relationship to the real world. Um, I mean, this affects the way that we live in the economy that we've been placed in, which incidentally was why Pharaoh hated the Sabbath so much and wouldn't let the Jews rest because had they rested, it would have affected his bottom line. Mm -hmm. Um, the Jews actually, people loved, interestingly enough, people loved going to the, going to war with the Jews. Um, in the ancient world, they loved going to war with the Jews because the Jews were the only people group in the world that would not fight one day a week. So if you were fighting against the Jews, you would get a day off as their enemies. Um, it affects the bottom line of everything. And then on technology, 
Um, what if we took a day a week and turned our phones off? Now, I know immediately the minute we turn our phones off, our fingers are trembling and we're terrified. <laughs> and even that moment, you know, when we turn it off, it's interesting that the people who made the Bible or made the iPhones did it in such a way that when you turn your iPhone off, it flashes an apple with a bite taken out of it, like we're back in the Garden of Eden. Wow. And we've been eating from the wrong tree all week long. Um, but even that, that, that moment of turning the phone off, uh, it is so, that goes so against our culture. I mean, it offends every modern sensibility that one day a week, I'm not, I'm not at your service. I am, for one day a week, I am before the Lord my God. I'm with my family. I'm eating pancakes. Um, that affects real stuff. And I think the point of the second part of my book really is, second, third part, is to nail down the idea that when we do the Sabbath, it really does actually reorient our relationship to the world. And at the end, it actually becomes an opportunity to witness uh, to who Jesus is. Mm. That's, that's, that's powerful. Really, really good. Um, say more about uh, discipleship and how the Sabbath and discipleship work together, because you know, you've encouraged me to be thoughtful and loving towards my neighbor, and discipleship is 24-7 in my head. It never goes away. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think what I really need yeah. to do is take four days and drive up north and look at Lake Superior and eat and sleep <laughs> yeah. and read a book and go for a walk yeah. and eat a good meal and just come back. And yep. there's, there's pressure. I even feel pressure in my head that I might not come back feeling the refreshment I so long for. Isn't that crazy? Uh, yeah, no, no. Uh, and ever, I'm going to guess every one of your listeners has the the odd experience of actually coming back from a vacation more tired than when they left. True. And that's because a vacation and a Sabbath are not the same thing. A vacation usually is uh, not actually being present to God. And usually it's it's just being running through Disneyland and <laughs> catching up with your yeah. kids. Yeah. yeah. The, the, uh, in terms of discipleship, I mean, the, at the end of the day, the idea of the Sabbath is, is very scary um, when I, I've always thought of Moses going up on the mountain, when Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law and he comes back down after uh, Israel has been brought out of Egypt and he comes back down the mountain and all of God's people are worshiping a golden calf. That, I mean, that story epitomizes for me why, why we're terrified of rest, or I should say why pastors don't take a Sabbath <laughs> or why we don't, because we're terrified. You know, if I go up the mountain and come back down, all of God's people are worshiping golden calf. I'm going to figure out I'm a bad leader. But the real thing, the real, ter- the real fear, this is, this is the crux of the matter, is if we go up the mountain and come back down and everybody's still worshiping God and we realize we're not near as important as we thought we were. Uh-huh. I think what the Sabbath actually does is it displaces us from our self-centeredness and actually centers us back on Christ. It is the ultimate act of discipleship, of saying to the world and to yourself, Jesus Christ is Lord and I am not. It is so rooted in being a disciple of Jesus and displacing us even from ourselves onto Christ. Um, I, you know, young people tell me all the time, Gen Zers, millennials, millennials um, of which I'm kind of an older millennial, um, they're always saying to me, um, I don't hear God's voice. I don't hear his voice. I don't hear his voice. Well, when you spend on average seven hours a day in front of your iPhone, no wonder we don't hear God's voice. We're not giving him any space to speak. But it turns out when you take a day and you're unavailable, 
God starts getting really loud. Mm. You know, I've got a couple of minutes left, AJ, and I would, I would love to hear, and this might be too personal, so I apologize in advance, would you walk me through a day in your life of a Sabbath? Yeah. Well, uh, r- luckily, I've written on this, so it's it's a uh, public info. But okay. I, good. Um, the 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 yeah. So the evening before the Sabbath, which our family Sabbath is on Tuesdays, um, Monday evening, I come home and we sing a song of the Sabbath Shabbat Shalom, and we do family devotions together. We read from the Gospels. And then we do communion together, and we sing a couple worship songs. And then that evening we go to bed, and in the morning we wake up, and we make the biggest pancake feast you've ever, Yum. ever had. Yum. And I want your okay, recipe. Yes. Well, my son is seven. It is like, it is the liturgy for my son. I mean, he, when he, <laughs> if you ask my son, what is the Sabbath about, he would say it's about pancakes. Yeah. Um, and the reason we do the pancakes is in the... Uh, ancient world, there was actually, there was an, there's an old ancient tradition that says that on the morning of the Sabbath, the father was to get up before any of the kids and get each kid a spoon of honey. Oh, wow. So that the children would never forget the sweetness of God's rest. And we do, we do, we don't do honey, we do maple syrup. And the goal is that in 50 years when I'm dead and gone, my son, if anybody even says the word Sabbath around him, just starts to drool. Oh, because that's he so remembers cute. He remembers God's rest. And what we do on the Sabbath, we eat good food. We go on hikes. We go on walks. We read our Bible. We, we read books. We watch a movie. Um, we hang out with our neighbors if they want, our family. Our phones are off. We're present to God, and we're present to each other. Now you're making and me weepy. We have, yeah, it's, well, it's powerful. And the truth is, uh, Bill, we've been doing this now for about, about 15 years. Wow. And we've never done Sabbath perfectly. But I will say this, every time we've done the Sabbath, it is like we're back in the Garden of Eden. That's fantastic. Beautiful. So do you have a nice flat griddle that you put these cakes on? I'm just trying to figure out what i got to buy to make myself happier. uh, A cast iron griddle. Nice. uh, The best pancake mix that I've ever found is called Snoqualmie uh, Pancake Mix. And we use that, among others. And I will tell you, pancakes have changed my son's life. I'm not surprised. They've changed my life. I'm not surprised. If I were if I were him, I would get his middle name changed to Pancake. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Okay, AJ. I had all these grandiose uh, plans to cover a couple of uh, books that you have, and I only got through one. So, you know what that means? I need to have you back, and the sooner uh, the better, because um, yep. I want to cover uh, your other uh, book, um, "Redeeming How We Talk: Discover How Communication Fuels Our Growth, Shapes Our Relationship, and Changes Our Lives." That's a topic I want to discuss, so maybe you will accept an invitation to come back soon. I'd love it. Bill, thanks for, uh, for having me, and thanks for listening. Yep. Dr. A.J. Swoboda has been my guest, professor, author, and pastor of Theophilus Church in Portland. All right, that wraps up our show for the day. Thank you for uh, joining me in this uh, great couple of hours, and I want to thank all my guests who just did an exceptionally good job, as they always seem to to do. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, let us... Consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, just kind of like the way we did today, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's always great to uh, to spur each other on, to, to help each other grow, to encourage each other. The listeners of Faith Radio are just simply amazing. You are such deep, thoughtful uh, thinkers and givers and 
the way you love on us just makes such a difference. We just, uh, I know everyone that sits in this chair gets a chance to feel and know and experience what it's like to be uh, spending time with you. And I know I speak for Susie and Carmen and everybody else on the station. We're just nuts about you. So thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. If you're a newcomer to the station, you want to get a new welcome packet, head over to MyFaithRadio.com. I think something will pop up on the screen. All you do is click that and fill it out, and we'll put something in the mail to you. We'd love for you to get to know more about us. That wraps up our show. Thank you so much. Once again, have a great night, and just know that God is just absolutely working out His best plan in your life, and He loves you and cares about you. And if you're listening to this on the podcast and you're now have your head on the pillow, I'll use a softer tone of voice. And I hope you get a great night's sleep. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.